Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. It's the Wonky Show. What will persuade students to enrol in September? Uh, we'll have a think. Uh, there are some proposals on international students, some suggestions for reform to admissions, and roads will fall. But how will that go down with our minister? It's all coming up. Uh, yes, I, I mean, I, I think students will um, will could change their mind late late in the day. Um, we're seeing what's happening in China at the moment with a you know small return of, of the outbreak. What that will mean on uh, <clears throat> on international travel for international students is still to be seen. But home students as well face a very difficult. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Jim Dickinson. I'm here to help us understand what's going on this week. As usual, we have two excellent guests. Uh, in London, Gaz Alwani Starr is Pro Vice-Chancellor at the University of London. Gaz, your highlight of the week, please. Oh, um, <coughs> not... Um in HE or politics, it's the Olive and Mabel, Mabel videos, the latest one on, uh, well, the, the one I received on company appraisals meeting was just absolutely brilliant. I loved it. Excellent. And in Manchester, Ben Ward is Chief Exec at the University of Manchester Student Union. Ben, your reason to be cheerful this week? Uh, again, nothing to do with HE, but uh, the return of the football season. Hopefully, my beloved team Liverpool will win a league championship after 30 years. Lovely. So, yes, we start this week with September. Universities UK had a fresh push this week at minimising deferrals and dropouts in September by reassuring students about provision. Ben, is it enough? Well, I mean, we've seen a huge plethora of announcements this week. Everyone rushing out to say nothing to see here, business as usual. So um, I suppose three things that, that have, have caught my eye this week. First of all, um, the UCAS Chief Operating Officer published a wonky article looking at um, deferrals this year as opposed to part of the ordinary cycle. Um, only a small rise uh, in what would, uh, would normally be expected. Um, although 20% of applicants surveyed have been anxious about missing out on the experience uh, you know we know through lots of research being done with students at the moment that um, that wider experience is one of the key key selling points um, to go into uh, go into universities uh, hot on the heels of that though um, to to kind of underline the point about business as usual uh, universities UK put a survey of 92 universities that said 97% of them uh, undertake some in-person teaching at the start of the year um, with 87% also expecting to offer in-person social opportunities to students um, now certainly locally we haven't yet got on to discussing that we're still focused on you know how will, how are we doing teaching um, and uh, there, there's just a whole range of uh, confusion um, not helped by both um, the minister talking about complaints to the Office of the Independent Adjudicator, which were quickly rejected by the Office of the Independent Adjudicator, um, and the uh, and the Office for Students issuing guidance on consumer rights. So I think 
Um, everyone is pretending that it's business as usual. Uh, we know it isn't. We know that universities are going through gargantuan efforts to try and get the sector ready for the start of the academic year. Um, but I get the, the sense that most sector bodies aren't being particularly helpful. This is really difficult, isn't it, Gaz? Because on the one hand, you know, we, the sector wants to reassure students about, you know, the experience they'll have. But on the other hand, the experience uh, is both unknown and absolutely won't be usual. So, you know, where 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 is the appropriate line between the two? Goodness knows. Um, it, it, it feels like we're all really stumbling in the dark and, and looking through crystal balls and I can use more meta- more metaphors to try, you know, in trying to work out what's going to happen in September. A, a, a lot of effort is going into, um, you know, assuring students that they will be safe. I think that's a big part of what we're trying to do. You know, if you come to university, whatever your experience is, for example, in the halls of residence, we will look after you. We'll make sure that you're safe. You know, we'll assure parents that their kids will be, will be safe, assure international students once they quarantine and travel and all of that, and there is no second outbreak, et cetera, et cetera, you know, that they will have a really good experience. But we've all experienced what uh, that uh, what is, um, you know, what we know today is completely different to what we knew three, four days ago. Uh, we're changing, we're, wor- we're working out our, um, uh, you know, plans, we're reworking our plans. Is it two meters? Is it one meter social distancing? So, um you know, we will see what happens in September. I guess today is the day for um, acceptances of offers. We'll see what that shows for for the sector. But the uh, the it feels like the road to September is a long and winding road still. Ben, the um, you know that we record on a Thursday morning, and on Radio Four, you know, ten fifteen minutes ago, as we record, there were a little group of students, and one student was saying that that you know that the, the, the interviewer put to them, you know, would social bubbles work? And the student said, well, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to to go to university was to meet this diverse range of people. Is that going to be possible, do you think, in September, that, that you know, mixing with lots and lots of different people? Or or do students probably have to accept that, you know, face-to-face social activity is going to be heavily, heavily restricted? I, I really don't think it, uh, much of this is, is possible. There's there's a number of things that, that I think universities are trying to say. Many universities have now come out in the last day or so and said, actually, if you choose to stay at home in the first term, that will be okay. Uh, you will have um, a similar learning experience to your peers. Um, I think there's still lots of conversations going on around the, the density of students being able to live in halls um, because, you know, it, the month of September is fairly like a pandemic in halls of residence anyway with freshers flu and um, and all, all the rest of it. So, but I do, I do think it will be difficult to do the two things. One, uh, say to students, you will meet a, a broad range of people from right across the world, form an international network of friends, um, uh, start activities that will help you know your sense of belonging and all of the rest of it whilst at the same time pulling off the social distancing and the social bubbles. Gaz what's your sense of where the deferral conversation is at you know is it that uh, you know the UCAS data is right and that you know we're worrying over nothing or is it that you know students and their families will make their minds up very very late in the day Uh, you know there could be lots of deferral right at the very last minute which would destabilise everyone I guess. Yes I I mean I I think students will um, will could change their mind late late in the day Um, we're seeing what's happening in China at the moment with a you know small return of, of the outbreak what that will mean on uh, <clears throat> on international travel for international students is still to be seen but home students as well face a very difficult time you know the, the employment market the graduate market has suffered eno- enormous losses um, 
20% reduction in recruitment, 13, 13% of employers saying they, they're not recruiting graduates, 40% drop in internships. Um, so the job market is, is looking dire, uh, taking a year out, looking uh, pretty miserable. You'll be stuck at home with your, with your family. Um, the powers that are pulling and pushing the decisions are... Um, are are going to be difficult for 18 year olds to to make their to to um, you know to make their minds up and for their families to help them in making the decision to make a very large investment uh, in terms of the fees and and the cost of of uh, of university um, i think university it traditionally does well at times of recession so that will go uh, in its in its favor and students will uh, hopefully uh, take up their courses my uh, my take on it is that I think there will be a drop in student numbers this year. Uh, I think some students will defer for all the reasons uh, that uh, that have already been highlighted in terms of the uh, societal experience uh, that of, of university and the personal experience of university. Well, obviously, our main concern, I think, has to be around uh, international recruitment. Um, you know, we've seen it again with the plethora of university announcements over the last couple of weeks. Universities offering free rent periods in halls of residence to uh, undertake quarantine before the start of term. Um, an interesting thing for me is talking to colleagues um, I- around institutions, uh, pre-sessional English uh, courses seem to be more popular than ever. Uh, now they're being delivered online, uh, many more students are signing up to them internationally to keep their options open to come and study in UKHE. So, so it, that might be the green shoots of recovery, or it might be students just keeping their options open for later on down the track. Yeah, I was saying to someone the other day, this keeping your options open thing I think is fascinating, because I was reading uh, a blog that suggested that, you know, that one of the reasons why international recruitment numbers might not be down everywhere is a sort of, you know, booking.com, keep your options open with a with a cancellable hotel room sort of effect, where, you know, lots of students have got lots of, you know, options open in lots of countries, and will decide very late on which country they go to, or which institution they enrol in, if they enrolled at all. But can I ask you both? Can I ask both of you? I mean, you both work in big urban conurbations um, where it's really, really hard to separate what goes on in the university from what goes on in the community. And if it's the case that campuses will be operating at, I don't know, 20 or 25% occupancy, presumably that means if you're not on campus when you were, you'll be somewhere else. Is the assumption that people will be in their room and at home? Or, or you know, how does that kind of work in terms of public transport and stuff? I mean, that's a, that, it's a very difficult question, isn't it? I mean, um, you know, our university is certainly involved with as many local decision makers as possible. The, the devolved mayoralty in Greater Manchester is looking at the economic recovery of the city region and the university is part of that. But I think on a, on a more operational basis, um, you know, we've, we've seen all sorts of tensions already during the pandemic between local residents and students. Um, I think I sent you an article from that, uh, that well-known publication, The Tab, the other day talking about um, students getting the blame for the increase in COVID-related deaths in a particular area of South Manchester. Um, and uh, I think we will see that you know, expanded even more come uh, come September. Um, but um, the you know the creaking infrastructure when students arrive is already 
uh, difficult at the best of times, but with social distancing, I know you were talking just before about the, the length of queues that you'd need to you know, adequately social distance on transport in London. Um, it's the same in, same in Manchester. Yeah, Gaz, I mean, we, 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 I mean just to say, we, we, were, uh, we were talking before we hit record. So, Gaz, just, just, just take us through that, uh, you know, that kilometre thing that you were talking to us about <laughs> in, terms of tu- in terms of the tube in London, because London's even more complicated. <laughs> yes, the challenges of transport in London have, uh, are, are only going to become just so much more difficult as, as we move into more people going into work and going into the centre. So just out of interest, when uh, I, I received an email from uh, TfL telling me that the capacity of the tube uh, on my journey to work will be will run between 15 and 20%. So I thought, oh, I'd work out what the length of the queue would be at my local underground station um, to see how long it would take me to get on a tube, which of course will arrive full, as it always does from the previous stations. And uh, allowing for the number of people that usually enter my tube station uh, between the hours of eight and nine o'clock in the morning and the, uh, the that capacity and the two meter distancing, then my queue will be seven kilometers long and it won't move at all, of course, because the tube will be full. So that's the exact length, uh, that's the exact distance to Senate House where I work. So I will be walking or, or cycling to work. Um, but it's a very interesting question that, that you put, Jim, because it is... Um, you know, we have been saying to students, come to to our halls. We've launched a safe to stay uh, sort of hashtag and campaign outlining a whole host of measures around how we're going to look after students, whether they're home students or internationals coming into, of course, a two-week quarantine, which we haven't uh, talked about uh, yet, uh, and how we would manage that uh, that situation. We've offered 700 con contracts so far in the in this week in the last three days and we've already had 330 signed contracts back and deposits paid two-thirds of those that have returned their contracts require quarantine so, uh, <laughs> yeah. so you know applications are up and booming in london uh, big time um so what will happen in september in in terms of our previous discussions will be you know very interesting uh, to watch and react to of course which we will have to do yeah, and, and Ben, I mean, look, you know, there is at least in theory a scenario here where, you know, all of the you know, of the work around reassuring students, um, you know, works and, you know, numbers boom and, you know, everyone turns up, even though they're, you know, they're quarantining and we'll, we'll talk about international students later. And then suddenly there's all sorts of other sorts of pressures that people aren't necessarily anticipating and have spent a long time planning for around, just, just around delivery and, you know, numbers being, you know, better than some people were expecting. Yeah, I think I think that's right, and I think uh, no one no one can really yet know that. I think that the you know um, Gaz is right to talk about um, the the ever changing nature what what goes on in 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 the next uh, couple of weeks following the uh, the final selection de- uh, deadline will uh, will really indicate that. Um, but you know we we then need to think about well what will library and learning resources look like what will um, IT clusters look like what will cafes look like uh, you know a whole host of things that um, uh, that we've just closed down um, in the uh, in the point up until now yeah because Gaz I, I mean the other thing I was saying the other day was you know there is a danger isn't there that you know computer labs and cafes and just somewhere to sit becomes like the kind of higher education equivalent of toilet rolls in March where you know you've you've got you got everyone kind of panic by you know how people panic by their sort of space in the library when it's exam time where they build a little fort in the morning you know there's a danger that that happens isn't there and, and you know that that's a problem because you know lots of those shared facilities are really there to enable a, a bit of levelling up for students who fra- perhaps you know haven't got anywhere to study or or, or, or or on the wrong side of the digital divide. 
Absolutely, absolutely right. Um, I, I think the um, you know how we organise our space um, to uh, respond to the needs of students as we move into this uh, next phase of of thinking about our delivery, you know, the social spaces as well as the academic spaces. I mean, a huge amount of work is happening on that front at the moment, but it certainly won't won't feel the same as it did uh, as it did last year. I mean, I I have a, a, a sort of a personal, uh, I guess. Um, um, a, a lack of uh, confidence in suggestions like the social bubbles and the, you know, students keeping away from each other. I think uh, anybody who's, uh, you know, who's who's watched students interact with each other, this just is completely unnatural to them. They also think that they're, of course, invincible. Uh, they're <laughs> yeah. they're young, and you know, even if they catch the virus, so what? They'll be fine. Um, which will, of course pose some uh, you know additional risks potentially to staff the frontline staff in particular um so we we have to be mindful and plan for all of those eventualities and it poses a risk to the reputation of universities as well i mean uh, not connected to universities but we saw over the last week some illegal raves happening around manchester lots of young people who potentially could be students if we see that sort of thing happening in term time um well we're going to see the finger pointed very quickly at universities for bringing people to towns and cities good well lots to think about now let's see who's been blogging for us this week I am Randall Whittaker, Pro Vice Chancellor, academic at Leeds Arts University. This piece is a response to worldwide Black Lives Matter demonstrations where I offer thoughts on why lack of action and apathy within the university sector contributes to race inequality. I argue that now is the time to stop excluding those with lived experiences from decision making. The unwillingness to do so is driving racism and at the heart of making such slow progress on racial injustice. I challenge readers to consider gender equality as advances for cis white women, whilst the contribution of the black women's movement within suffrage has been erased from history. And I share my frustration at how casually the narrative around numbers in our sector is used. Numbers are being used to explain away inaction, and that is racism. And don't forget, we'd love to have your contribution on the site. If you'd like to pitch us a piece, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com with your idea, and we'll be in touch. Now, next up, former Universities Minister Joe Johnson published a report this week on universities and international students. Gaz, what's going on here? Um, so this report comes soon after the Minister's speech earlier in the month uh, at the British Council, basically saying the UK's education system is open to students from across the world and outlining the ways in which government is working to make it easier for international students to come here. She gave a pledge that students coming to the UK will benefit from great education and be looked after in the same way as home students. Which is clever, I thought, I mean, and important in light of messaging coming out of the US. She also said that the UK will be flexible on visa regulations and announce appointment of Sir Steve Smith as international education champion. It was all good news for the sector and for UK PLC. Joe Johnson's report is a good read. It's punchy with data and graphs demonstrating the value of the business of international students to the UK economy. You can take lots of headlines from it. 3.2 billion in taxes contributed by one cohort of international students who stay in the UK uh, for the first 10 years after graduation. These graduates do not take jobs from UK citizens. Current government objectives would put the UK on a trajectory that would see it half its market share by 2030, 4.3 billion shortage of research funding in the UK, basically being paid for by international students, so on and so forth. So a very good, a very good report for facts and figures and graphs if you're preparing presentation on international recruitment. 
The report makes eight recommendations and they all make perfect sense. Adopt a goal for the UK to be a number one study destination worldwide after the US. Create a best-in-class student visa offer. Double the post, uh, the post-study work visas from two to four years. Double student numbers from India and include it as a low-risk country. Refocus the efforts of the British Council uh, on education promotion activity. And of course, the, the, the British Council was given their 60 million uh, pound bailout package. Uh, take out the bureaucracy uh, confronting international students and put universities, not government, in charge of English proficiency and tier four visas, mitigate the impact of COVID, make education exports central to the UK's post-Brexit trade strategy and require the new international education champion to report progress to Parliament annually. So the report, I think, will be welcome, although not all of George Johnson's initiatives uh, were a hit when he was university's minister, e.g. TEF. He is respected and seen as someone who understands the sector and represents its interests well. So what's missing? Uh, a lot, actually, but I'll mention just a few. Uh, Africa, only one mention in the report for a place where the 15 to 25-year-old population is set to double in the next 30 years and where this proportion of the population is already double that of Europe's. The report's also missing empathy with international student experience as a whole. <coughs> it assumes that there is nothing for universities themselves to do and could be read as treating international students as a mere commodity. I'm not sure how the messaging will translate when seen through a different lens. And finally, as alumni of the University of London who studied law while in prison, Nelson Mandela said education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. At this time, when the devastating impact of COVID is being felt by millions across the world and when we are facing the realities of racism and inequality, it was hard not to see more in the report on the real value of education. At the University of London, we're the oldest provider of flexible distance online learning. We see our role as enabling people across the world to change their lives for the better and address inequalities in access to education. It's been a mission for 150 years and in our DNA. So when this higher order value of education is not adequately articulated, um, we really do miss it and feel it. Yeah, I mean, Ben, Gaz has got a point. I mean, the, 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 I, I, certainly I was reading it thinking... You know, uh, uh, most of these sorts of things that you read, at least there is a pretense that this is about something kind of more noble. I mean, this was very, very sort of, you know, you know, here's how we persuade these people to bring their checks. I mean, in many ways, he's he's playing to the crowd of the day, isn't he? I think this is, you know, th- this is playing to the narrative of, you know, how do we become a global Britain again, open for business throughout the world, um, post-Brexit policy. So, it, you know, in, in many ways, I think it's a useful contribution playing to the... To the, to the governments of the day, um, you, you know, I think you know particularly some of the um, some of the discussions around um, uh, post-study work visas and moving away from the, the hostile environment that Theresa May created, that uh, included international students, uh, that no one, even in government, could quite believe. Um, but but I do I do think this is this is a a clear indication of the the, the future direction for um, for UK HE as an international export. Guys, the other thing that I thought was interesting was, I mean, I, I was talking to someone the other day that was saying, look, one of the things we've got to take into account with international students is that, um, you know, lots and lots of countries, they might not have a, you know, a set of... Um, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, economic cushioning schemes as extensive as the UK via Rishi Sunak, you know, and the and the and, and you know the very the furlough scheme and so on. But you know, most countries are cushioning to some extent this part of the pandemic, and we're about to move into a period where 
most economies will go into sharp recession and no one's really clear on what that might do for example to international mobility absolutely and the uh, i mean the, the the predictions of a of a global recession are very important and these are only going to serve to highlight the inequalities of access to education the ability for uh, for those uh, you know disadvantaged to to travel um you know the lack of jobs i mean you know international students come here and they it's great uh, disruption to their lives um you, you know they sacrifice a lot their families whole have whole families often club together to to fund the student to come and study so uh, so I, I think there will be a, 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 a huge impact on on that market there was a, a I mean there was an evaluation this morning in the, in the Times higher round which countries will do best in uh, being able to attract international students um, and uh, you know in, in coming to to their uh, countries and evaluation of sort of what's happening in the US Canada uh, the UK Germany uh, etc and uh, and everybody is trying their best uh, and everybody's putting packages in to support international students coming to study in their countries but the fact of the matter is that a student has got to be able to afford to get on, well first yeah. of all he's got to be allowed to come on a plane you know and then being able, be able to, to afford the plane ticket being yeah. able to <laughs> afford the plane ticket and, and come here um and then really being able to afford to to live here um so i think it's those packages and, and that's where i think a whole system approach to the whole experience of international students coming to the UK. UK is also missing from that report. It's about the program of study. It's about something that's suitable for their uh, for what they're going to do when they go back home. How they're going to improve their lives and and, and improve their uh, their lot really through through acquiring this education. There was one thing that linked to the uh, linked to the earlier thing about international recruitment, though, that I think we're seeing two very different things in relation to either undergraduate applications or postgraduate applications from international students. The sense is that, um, and certainly this was fed back from um, the Indian High Commission recently, that the undergraduate students will see a terms inconvenience as okay because they'll have three, four years here studying plus the post-study work visa. Um, but it's postgraduate taught students that, that are already here for such a short time. But that tends to be where um, lots of universities recruit uh, many more students. Now, next up, a think tank has published a report into university admissions practices this week, aiming to ensure that admissions are fair, transparent and equitable. Ben, tell us more. Well, I mean, if, I think if we had a pound for every time there was a report on reforming the UK admission system, um, <laughs> we'd be uh, we'd be quite we'd be quite rich. And 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 I think this you know this goes into this this long uh, and deep uh, um, uh, dissatisfaction with how the how the admission system works. Um, we could have been in a year this year where we tried um, post qualification admissions, but actually we just seem to want to operate the system as usual. Um, but the, uh, the this this report, I think I think it poses a new and and an, a set of interesting recommendations of the sector. Um, again, like the previous report, eight recommendations to the Office for Students and University. So first, the OFS should, should uh, select a designated admissions body, such as UCAS. I mean, I'm sure it would be UCAS. Um, the, the OFS should... Uh, a, bit like, a bit like when HESA got picked as the, uh, you know, who might become the designated data body? Oh, in, look, indeed, it's HESA. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the OFS should impose a condition of registration um, that each provider must use the uh, system operated by the designated admissions body. 
Um, at the beginning of the admission cycle, uh, though, universities will be required to publish a standard qualification requirement for each undergraduate degree. Uh, and interestingly, once that's published, it cannot be altered by universities at any point of the admission cycle. Um, so, you know, that, that uh, last minute change to, to drop grades um, in order to uh, pull in more students through clearing may be a thing of the past if these recommendations are, uh, are implemented. Um, and all universities must also state the maximum number of students that they can accept on to each degree course without compromising the quality of education they provide. I'm not quite sure how you measure that one, but um, uh, it will be interesting to... Uh, well, well what, indeed, what, what, does that, what does that mean? Um, and then, actually, what they rather than doing local contextual admissions, the recommendation is a new national contextual offer will be applied to uh, the standard qualification requirement um, at, uh, at, the, at the level um, required by, by applicants facing the greatest level of disadvantage. So, so um, rather than universities working in uh, local communities and through its widening participation initiatives, uh, setting contextual admissions, this being done at a national level, um, and a whole set of other recommendations. But actually, the, the, re the really interesting thing there is, is, is stopping uh, the, the use of um, dropping grade requirements or uh, the use of unconditional offers that seems to be uh, hated as a policy by the by the government by OFS. Gaz, is this uh, you know is, is is a bit of a loss of uh, autonomy here, a price worth paying to sort of tick this off? You know, the government's ire list. You know, the government is clearly still upset about unconditional offers and bums on seats and so on. You know, is, should should the sector just accept these sorts of recommendations in order to you know get get on with things and improve its reputation, or is that a step too far in terms of you know autonomy? Well, I found it very difficult to be honest with you to read to read a report that seemed to be so prescriptive in terms of what should be done at a time when and everybody's working out what we need to do almost on a daily basis. It, it just came, it, it just re was really left field read for me. I found it very difficult. I come from uh, Syria, originally from Damascus, and, and, the, and the baccalaureate systems run over there. You know, if you get 90, above 90%, you, you study medicine, above uh, 88, you study engineering, above 85, you study law. You know, it, it, it was very, um, you know, prescriptive, and, 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 and it felt, it read a little bit like that, to be honest with you. Um, I think it just really fails to recognize the diversity that we have in our in in the UK higher education system, the, the diversity we have in the student body and the routes that they take to come into university. Um, the whole suggestion that there could be sort of some kind of national policy on this is 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 is. I mean, it, it's worrying, actually. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, Ben's in Manchester. I'm in London. We know that in London, uh, you know, London and, and Manchester are probably seen as success stories in terms of attracting funding, attracting research, etc. But there are severe inequalities within our local areas, and universities work very, very hard to address uh, this advantage that exists within pockets of uh, of large metropolitan areas. So, uh, so no, actually, I, I don't think it the recommendations are sensible, uh, and I don't think they really reflect the flexibility that we're all having to show at the moment and the real challenges that face us in enabling disadvantaged uh, people to get into higher education. Hi, my name is Jen Summerton and I'm the Executive Director for the Higher Education Strategic Planners Association, or HESPA. With the first release of HESA's Graduate Outcome Survey data being published today, we've produced a guide which focuses on how to use and interpret the data. The state of the graduate labour market has been of widespread interest for a long time not only to students and providers, but to funders, regulators, policymakers, journalists, researchers and the public. The richness of the survey data cannot easily be captured in headline stats, and it's therefore important to remember a few things. Like, this is new information. It's a new survey without comparison. Qualifications are important enabling factors, but not guarantees of career success. Some courses have clear professional employment pathways, 
and some providers run a large number of these courses, but others don't. Small numbers can have a big impact, particularly when turned into percentages. Two years have passed since the first survey respondents graduated and a lot has changed since then. These are just a few of the things that the guide covers, but there is a lot more. Please check it out. And huge thanks go to Sally, Laura and Anita for putting it together. Happy reading! Now, uh, we record uh, The Wonky Show on a Thursday morning. And while we've been recording, Hisa has released uh, iteration one of the results of graduate outcomes. And here to tell us more is David Kernahan. So this is the first iteration of the HESA Graduate Outcomes Survey, a population-level survey of graduate activity 15 weeks after the graduation of the 2017-18 cohort. As it is the first time we've seen this data, we need to be careful about interpretation, and it is certainly not comparable to DLHE, so no building of time series, please. 87% of UK graduates were in full-time employment or further study at the time of the survey, 60% in full-time employment alone. And there's an eight percentage point gap in full-time employment between white and black and minority ethnic graduates. We get interesting data about the jobs graduates are working in as a clear slant towards high-skilled employment for science graduates. But even 61% of the much maligned creative arts graduates are in high-skilled employment. The high-skilled framing comes from standard occupational qualifications, SOCs. And we've covered issues with these on Wonky before. Suffice it to say, there's a lot going on between that headline finding, and we'd need to dig deep into the coding to understand what it is. It's also notable in this area that creative arts students are only a percentage point less likely to be in full-time employment than biological sciences graduates. The salary data shows that women are disproportionately represented at lower salary level bands, and we're more likely to find men on high salaries. One persistent myth around the gender pay gap has been that women have lower salaries on average because of career breaks. This appears to me to be compelling evidence that this is not the case. Hearteningly, 86% of survey graduates felt their current activity was meaningful. 80% reported that their current activity matched future career plans, and 72% reported that they were using skills learned during study. Obviously, these are complex questions. The construction of meaning through employment is a contentious field of inquiry at the best of times. But we do get some very encouraging answers. As always, there's more on the site if you want to take a look. And finally, roads will fall after all. The news that Oriel College Oxford has voted to uh, at least an intention to take down the controversial statue of Cecil Rhodes comes just a day after the university's minister had things to say on the issue of statues and so on. Gaz, what did we learn from Heppy's Michelle Donnellan interview? Uh, so I thought the speech covered really uh, good ground and Nick Hillman was as good as usual in sort of picking up the key uh, issues uh, in the follow-up questions. Um she started acknowledging the impact of COVID-19 on universities and thanked them for adopting, adapting quickly to mitigate the impact on students, outlined measures that have been put in place to help the sector. She dropped in the 30,000 unconditional offers in one week again uh, and concluded that part of her uh, uh, the, that part of her talk, setting out the expectations from providers. She said the depth and breadth of the curriculum, the quality of the teaching, the value of the degree achieved must stay the same. COVID-19 could be with us for a very long time. God, I hope she wrong. And as universities prepare for the next academic year, they may well be operating in a different learning environment. Regardless of this, they must still make sure that all students, no matter what background, can expect to get the same kind of high quality academic experience that they would have done before the pandemic broke out. I'm, I'm sure we can pick at this at a, a, you know, while we're talking about it. 
She then described the various ways that students of all backgrounds have been affected by the pandemic. She thought that a huge part of the success of the sector's responses to date has been down to the resilience shown by students. And, and I really strongly agree with that. I think students this year have been great and, and they have suffered. And to, and to be fair to her, she has in her 125 days in the job, as she said, been consistent in her desire to address students' welfare in, in all of its forms, uh, you know, well-being and mental health particularly. She reminded the audience of the various support packages that have been introduced, acknowledged the work the universities have done to help students and then announced Student Space, uh, an initiative with Student Mind supported by 3 million from the OFS to plug gaps in mental health provision for students for the next six months for English and Welsh universities. I'm not sure how much can be achieved in six months. To be honest, anyone who has worked with students' mental health knows that can, the connection between the student, their home GP and the NHS, as well as mental health services and the institution's own well-being services and the, and the students' academics is critical. So this is not an easy ask in six months. A quick gallop through the questions from Nick. Thoughts on Black Lives Matter. Her response, her response was that we can't edit uh, or, or censor our past, but we yeah, must the, learn. The, the sort of standard government response that, 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 that this week has been, uh, she sort of she re re rehearsed that standard government response, didn't she? Yeah, she did. Uh, you know, um, she, Nick uh, raised the student accommodation concerns. Her advice is check your contract, speak to Citizens Advice Bureau, uh, but acknowledge that many students don't live in halls and universities must support all students. Question, and we've already talked about international student recruitment which she covered she confirmed that the numbers cap is temporary uh, she was asked whether she had any advice to this year's graduates she didn't really she just said just work to upskill your, uh, to upskill yourself where is Olga it's coming how is the OFS doing very well Brexit her priority is social mobility and working on alternatives for Erasmus which will remain only if it is in Britain's best interests I mean it was the usual uh, iron fist in a velvet glove. She did her best to praise universities in its short-term responses, but talked very critically about things like uh, unconditional offers, the need to improve welfare services, uh, and a whole host of a whole host of other things. But no, nothing, nothing, uh, no new policy announcements apart from the uh, the three million funding for the new um, mental health platform that's been developed with Student Minds um, to complement and support existing services in universities, which you know is, is certainly a very um, a very positive step for the for the sector where we know that support services demand is far far outstripping supply. Yes, there's a lot of I mean you know if you take everything that Michelle said there's, there's, there are quite high expectations on a sector that is exhausted and is facing a real gap in terms of the resource it will have in the in the next couple of months. Are the expectations you know that if you take the totality of what Michelle said are the expectations you know right is it possible to do everything in terms of you know support and equivalence of provision and so on that you know Michelle suggests that it is important the sector delivers? I think it is important that the sector delivers. I think where I found uh, her speech a little bit uh, difficult to take is where she talks about the same kind of experience. Uh, I mean, we all know that that's just not going to happen. It's it's impossible to happen, whether it is by, uh, you know, the physical use of our space and the way that we deliver the teaching, uh, or whether how people feel about social interactions and how people feel about coming to work and how students are going to feel being at university. Um you know, the, the content of our material has moved from face-to-face -face teaching to online and, and distance education, but it's really content that was prepared initially for face-to-face -face teaching. So, you know, and we were lucky at the University of London is that all of our provision has been online and we, we had to deal with sort of uh, online assessments and proctoring and things like that. But the material that students have received in the last term this year was originally designed for face-to-face -face teaching. So it's not the same experience when it is delivered online or uh, remotely. Um, so, 
so I think her expectations are are too high. I think the financial pressures will will no. Of, of course, they will have that. Many universities have already announced big organizational change programs, redundancies, uh, etc. So. No, I don't think it will be the same. I think everybody will work very hard and to give a great experience. And and you know, as we were saying before we started, it feels like the the academic year that will never end, and we will just sort of keep on going over the summer. Uh, but it won't be the same experience. I'm pretty sure about that. But Ben, if I look at the questions that Nick Hillman asked, one of the things that struck me was the extent to which lots of the things we're not certain about or worried about aren't strictly DFE issues, right? Yeah. You know, so you know, some of that consumer law stuff is really a kind of Bayes issue. Some of the health stuff is really a Department of Health issue. You know, some of the accommodation stuff is really a Ministry of Housing and Local Government issue, you know, communities, uh, you know, Robert Jemrick and so on. And I, I, I was thinking, watching it, you know, it, it's not immediately clear to me that at that kind of next level down for a kind of, you know, less headliney community like students and universities, it's not immediately clear to me that there's lots of coordination happening at that level between departments and, and DfE on some of these, you know, thorny questions. No, I Agreed, and I and I don't think we will get that level of coordination until some uh, difficult challenges come September, when local health services uh, start being overrun, uh, or the, the transport infrastructure isn't there, as we as we were saying earlier. Um, that's when I think it will it will force the issue. Um, it's it's almost as if we yeah, we're talking about the wider experience, and yet we're just focusing on better online lectures. Yeah, there's so much here that actually you know universities can influence, but really can't control, right, Gaz? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely right. And and to be honest, there hasn't so far there hasn't been a demonstration that the right hand and the left hand are talking in government anyway. Uh, yeah. You know, we've had conflicting even on the really big things, oh, let alone. Ab- absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know, we've had conflicting and confusing messages within 24 hours of each other. We've had uh, ministers not talking to each other. We've we've had you know the this, the strange looks that they give each other when they're doing the daily briefing. Saying really, <laughs> you know, um, I mean, and that hasn't really changed. Um, so. I, so I think Ben's absolutely right. I think it is. It it will come to the crunch, and then people will start to talk. and And actually, universities will be expected to pick up the pieces in places. and And we are preparing for doing some of that. Ben, just before we uh, wrap up, uh, any quick reflections? I mean, you know, you're, you you work at a student union that does a lot of kind of student activist uh, support and student activist campaigning and so on. This this will presumably be you know quite a big moment for the student campaigners at uh, Oxford. Yeah, it will, and and right around the country. I think you know the roads must fall campaign has been used as a proxy for learning about the heritage of all of our institutions uh, whether that be you know uh, connections to slave trades who slave traders who have built buildings or funded long-standing bursaries um, obviously hot on the heels of the University of Glasgow last year talking about um, using the word reparations deliberately to fund uh, scholarships from Jamaican students um, but it, this is a, a, a huge moment and a, and a huge change in in um, really reflecting on uh, the heritage of our institutions. And I think, you know, those universities that are are ahead on this will do much better with the reputation of their students and, um, and the wider reputation of the sector. So that's about it for this week. To find out more about anything we've discussed today, you'll find links on the episode page at wonky.com where you can also leave your thoughts and comments. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show on your favourite podcast directory or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you think you've got what it takes to be a guest on the show, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks again to our guests, Gaz and Ben, to everyone at Team Wonky for making the show happen behind the scenes and of course to you for listening. Until next week, stay wonky. Oh, 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 oh,
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.